Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our epistle lesson is our sermon text for this morning, taken from 1 Peter. We've been uh, studying 1 Peter here the last couple of weeks. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is our sermon text. Dear friends in Christ, I think it can be said, without any doubt whatsoever, that one of the most tender of all illustrations that the Bible uses for the relationship that exists between God and his people is that of a good shepherd, the good shepherd, and his sheep. Right? Psalm 23 certainly relates to that, doesn't it? It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm, probably the most liked and loved of all. And then there's John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Let me repeat a few words from there. Where he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep follow me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And yet, as I said before in our introduction, there are many people, and perhaps many of us, who have not grown up in rural, uh, rural America. Uh, and, and as a result, maybe we just don't seem to understand this. I mean, you don't find sheep and shepherds on the corner of 5th and Main, right? Well, if you want to know more about that relationship, I'm going to suggest a book for you. And maybe you've read it, maybe you've had it. I hope you have. It's a book entitled... A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. It's written by a man by the name of Philip Keller. It's wonderful. Philip Keller was an Australian shepherd, and he was also a very, very deep and uh, a, a, a Christian uh, in, in incredible ways. He speaks so eloquently as he goes through the 23rd Psalm, and each phrase he, uh, he goes into, and in particularly talking about the the, the, the different habits of a, of a sheep. It's really a wonderful book. Again, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, Philip Keller. But our text was, uh, was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Peter. He wasn't a shepherd, right? He was a fisherman. And yet he lived at a time when there were a whole lot of sheep and a whole lot of shepherds around. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about here today. 
what it means to follow the good shepherd. What it means to follow the good shepherd. Now we've been studying First uh, Peter for the last couple of weeks. And let me again put a context to this. <clears throat> he was writing to some people in what is now northern Turkey. He talks about the province of Bithynia. And apparently there were obviously uh, scattered Christians there in scattered cities. And uh, they were struggling. Their, their faith was being tested. They needed some help. So he gives them instruction. But what was the reason? What was the reason why they were struggling? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I think we have to relate again to the context, the time. Remember, Nero was the Roman emperor. Insane Nero. And he didn't particularly like Christians. That was one reason. But then they were struggling for other reasons. Now, I've kind of wondered why those who chose this particular text didn't include verse 18, because I think verse 18 helps us understand this. In verse 18, he's speaking to slaves. He says, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. It appears that many of the people that he was writing to were indeed slaves. And yet, by the Holy Spirit's power, they came to know Jesus. So what's the good, godly advice that Peter is speaking to them? He says, and this rubs people the wrong way, and maybe it kind of rubs you the wrong way. He says, Slave, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. As a result of what he says here and what Paul says in other places, we're going to actually quote him a little bit later. Many people bring accusations against the Bible and say that the Bible is somehow for slavery. And I've heard that many, many times. People will say, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible is uh, all for slavery. And if God really wrote it, he certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be including that. The devil smiles. <laughs> but we need to study this a little, bit, uh, a little bit harder and really get into it. Now, in the United States, we have a certain view of slavery, right? The slavery that occurred in the United States was really race-based. And it's evil. And we acknowledge that. There was a war fought over it. That isn't necessarily the same kind of slavery that we understand or that our history and our social studies teachers taught us that was true of, of, uh, of Rome. First of all, let me say this. The Bible never, ever condones slavery like that. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes a long list of sins, and uh, listen, to which, uh, listen to what kind of sins. These are open and awful sins that were in, uh, in, in vogue during the time of the Apostle Paul. He said, we also know that the law is made for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, 
for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So the Bible doesn't condone slavery and slave traders. And there's another point that needs to be made. And like I said, this is the point that I want to make very clear to you. The kind of slavery that we were taught that occurred in the United States is not the kind of slavery that he's talking about here when it occurred in the Roman Empire. You see, <clears throat> when he talks about slavery in the Roman Empire, there were lots of rules and regulations that went with it. For instance, for instance, you were a slave if someone, if a Roman soldier went off to war and won the battles, they could bring back the enemy and they could be slaves. But they could also be slaves. You and I could be a slave if we made a very bad financial decision. And the decision, uh, if, if somehow our investments went bad and, and our pockets seemed to have holes in them, and, and we have these creditors on our doorstep, those creditors could take us and actually make us their slaves until that, until that debt was paid off. But according to Roman law, there were all kinds of rules and regulations that went with it. For instance, if you were a slave, and if it was possible, you could actually acquire land. You could marry whomever you wanted. And you could... You could claim those rules and regulations. And one of the things that the rules and regulations of Rome's law said about slave trade or slaves was this. That the slave owner needed to provide food and clothes and lodging. And in fact, <laughs> uh, it got to be this way that sometimes it was better to be a slave than a poor free man. Cicero the great orator of Rome once wrote an essay on this particular point about slavery in the Roman Empire. And you know what he said? He said, he made this observation, in seven years, generally, the slaves were freed. So it wasn't quite the same, is it? What we think of slavery, what we've been taught as to what it was in the city of Rome. And apparently there were many slaves who claim Jesus Christ as their Savior. And what does, G what does Peter say to these people? He says, submit to your masters. Submit to them. Submit to them. You see, when you talk about the Christian faith, we aren't supposed to use it as a platform for rebellion, or for social change, if you know what I mean. And that's what Paul, Peter was warning them about. You don't use the Christian faith to suddenly change rules in society. The Christian faith, whether you were free or whether you were a slave, is all about a relationship. A relationship with our Good Shepherd. The one who frees us from what? The guilt of sin. The one who frees us from the fear of death. 
Because what? We're going to go to heaven when we die. Jesus frees us, our Christian faith frees us from the devil himself. When the devil wants to bring all kinds of accusations to us, what does the Bible say? There is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We're free from that. We're free from that. Now, if you go again back to 18, verse 18, the word that's used there for slavery was a special kind of slave. It was a house slave. And the house slave was kind of like a member of the family. When a, when a slave worked for the family, got to know the children, got to know the parents. And in fact, it was more like an employer-employee relationship than it was slave-master. The Apostle Paul also wrote about this particular kind of slavery. And he said in his letter to the Colossians, he says, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord you are saving. And isn't that the key phrase? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord you are serving. Kind of puts a different light on the work that we do. And in fact, we often use these words from Peter and from Paul to talk about the Christian work ethic. That in spite of the fact that we might have bosses, we might have people over us that need a lot of Jesus, nevertheless, we're there to give them everything we have, to honor them and to respect them, and to carry out the duties that we're supposed to do. You see, when when you get down to everything and boil everything down, the Lord is not impressed. The Lord is not impressed if you have a good name. I mean, a name that's known in society. He doesn't care about your money or your assets that you have financially. He doesn't care about the reputation that you have. He doesn't care about any of those things. Because when it comes to all people, he deals with us in accordance with the law and the gospel. Right? And it doesn't make any difference if you're up here on the social ladder or down here. The same truth is true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. <laughs> but the good news is, same passage, and all are justified, justified, declared innocent, freely by his grace, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So when we come to faith and come to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a Savior who says that he obligates himself, he commits himself, to be our good shepherd, because we are his sheep. He will guide, he will protect, he will lead us 
to the grassy fields of the living word. He commits himself to be the overseer of our souls. That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, what a status we enjoy because we're connected with Jesus. And in fact, the Lord tells us all kinds of different ways. He's, he says the same thing, but he uses different illustrations. I mean, here in the Good Shepherd Sunday, we're talking about we are members of his flock. He is the Good Shepherd. Uh, the Bible tells us that we are members of his family, right? We're adopted into his family, that our God is our Father. And as our Father, we have access to him through Jesus Christ, and that we can go to him. And in fact, the Bible says in Romans, that we can call him Abba, Father. That's like saying, Daddy, we're that familiar with him. The Bible says that we are also members of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and we're the parts, right? We're the ones by which the Lord gets work done in his kingdom. We're the arms, we're the feet, we're the fingers. And then he says this. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, for he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And how about this one? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. We are one with him and one with each other. That's our status before the Good Shepherd. But you know what? You know what? We've got to remember this, that we can enjoy that status, and we ought to, because God wants us to enjoy uh, that oneness with Him. But as we live in this world, the world could care less. Right? The world could care less. And as they, as they see us walking in the world, what do they see? Well, I'll tell you what they don't see. They don't see the garments of salvation that we wear. They don't see the robes of righteousness that we have. Right? What they see is flesh and blood people. And if they understand that we're Christian and that we claim Christianity, they're going to probably say, oh, you're an ignoramus. You believe in all that stuff, that mythical man named Jesus? you got to be kidding. So we're ridiculed. We're ridiculed. Peter says something rather comforting to us when this happens. He says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of us unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. If other people see Christ in us, if they know that, isn't that good? Even though they may hate us, isn't that good? And how do we react? Do we go down to their level, call them the ignorant ignoramuses? Do we call them the fools? Do we seek vengeance? Again, let's hear what Peter says. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Endure it. Continue to love them. Pray for them. 
Someone said it like this. I thought it was really good. In fact, he says, it is good to go through such things because the experience will teach us just how far apart the world and the Lord are. So you don't shortchange your boss, in spite of the fact that your boss might be an evil person. <laughs> you build him up. You honor him. You work hard for him or her. And you show what a Christian is really all about. Because when it comes to, when it comes to suffering, always remember this, that the real expert about it, about what it's like, is none other than Jesus himself. Right? And that's what Peter says. And he reminds us. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus once said that a servant is not above his master. For Jesus is our master. He was certainly suffering from the hands of people and from the mouths of people. We can expect the same in our lives, too. But how did Jesus handle it? Again, he did not retaliate. He did not seek revenge. In fact, what he did, what he did was suffer silently for their sins, the very sins that they were doing and doing all of that too. That's where we come into the picture. That's where we come into the picture. Yes, Jesus at times called people on the carpet, but it wasn't because he hated them. It was because he loved them and he called them to repent. To repent. And that's too, is our aim. So understand this. Understand this. Don't be like the world, but follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. I found something when I was reading once that I thought was incredible. It was actually a copy, and not the original copy or anything like this. It was English and everything, but there was a letter that was written by a man by the t name of Diognetus. This goes back to the first or second century. And they found this in some archaeological dig. And Diognetus was a man who was observing a certain group of people. And you know who those people were? They were Christians. He wasn't a Christian, at least at that time. But he writes about them. And he says these things, and it's quite lengthy. He says, Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. In other words, they kind of mix in. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their citizenship. 
They live in their own native lands, but as aliens passing through, right? Every foreign country is to them their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are put to death, but gain life. They are poor and make many rich. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, and yet they are cleared. They are marked, mocked, and, and, and they bless in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When, they, when punished, they rejoice as if given a new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. And yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Diognetus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that letter the first time, I said to myself, <laughs> Diognetus, if you saw me, I'm not so sure you would see all those things in me that he was seeing in the early Christians. But isn't it a wonderful thing that the Apostle Peter writes here for us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Yes, we have a good shepherd. And what did the good shepherd do for us? He laid down his life for us. Amen.